0: Well, take your Bibles and turn to the last book of the Old Testament, which is Malachi. And uh, we are going to wrap up our series on major points of the minor prophets. It seems like we just started yesterday on this, and it's already, uh, it's already time to wrap it up. But uh, I trust that you've been encouraged by this series, this, this semester, this fall semester. and. Um, I know this was really a healthy study for me personally. God has been just doing some things in my own heart, just granting me perspective into my own life, in my own relationship with the Lord, my own sinful struggles, and the results of those in my own life and family. And so this has been a very, um, both encouraging and convicting all at the same time. And I think that's always uh, what we should be praying for when we come before God's Word, whether it's uh, through the preached Word or just the red Word, as we read it in our own quiet times, that God would be regularly encouraging us and challenging us uh, with with His Word. And so um, we're going to look at this um, really um, pivotal book uh, in in the Bible tonight. And by way of introduction, I want... Uh, to just mention to you a book that i 'm sure you 're familiar with it 's a classic work by the late great Christian philosopher and apologist Francis Schaeffer. and the book is entitled "He is there and He is not Silent." Anybody heard of that book? He is there and he is not silent Are you serious nobody 's heard of that book He is there and he 's not silent um, and, and that book is 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 based on Uh, his late night conversations with with young people at uh, Labrie Fellowship in the Swiss Alps, uh, that he he was there for many years before he died, and uh, the book really discusses the fundamental questions about God and who he is and why he matters, but the reason why I mention the book is not because of its brilliant content, but because of its brilliant title. I mean, the title alone is worth the price of the book, right? He is there and he is not silent. And so that title clearly implies one of the most significant foundational truths about God, and that is that God speaks. It is the nature of God to to speak, to communicate, which is confirmed throughout the pages of of Scripture, which is in itself the product of God's ongoing communication and revelation and speaking to us as His creatures. In fact, the, the Bible begins... By uh, revealing the fact that God speaks. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And so we know that God spoke the world into existence, Um, He spoke with Adam. The first time it's recorded in, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, "From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil you shall not eat; for in the day that you eat, from it you will surely die." Those were his first words to, to Adam. Uh, his first words to Eve in chapter three, verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, "What is this that you have done?" And then, of course, we know after Adam and Eve, God spoke to Noah. Noah chapter 6, verse 13. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Just a few examples of how God has been speaking from the very beginning. And not only did he speak to Adam and Eve. Not only did he speak to Noah, but he spoke also to Abraham, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, countless other individuals in the Old Testament. He also spoke not just individuals, but he spoke consistently and collectively to his chosen people, the nation of Israel. Uh, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, uh, right uh, as he was introducing the Ten Commandments, this is what it says, then God spoke all these words, saying... And then he began to list the, the Ten Commandments. Well, we've been learning uh, here on Wednesday nights that the main way that God spoke to the nation of Israel as a whole was through a group of men known as who? Prophets, right? Both major prophets and minor prophets, and the only reason why they're differentiated between major and minor is not because you know, five of them are more important than the other 12, it simply is that the, the five major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, are much longer right books than the mini-prophets, the minor prophets, Right, some even the shortest book in the Bible. Um, And so those 12 were put together in one book in the original Bible so that they wouldn't get lost. Um, But the point is this, that God's voice was heard through the prophets. And, And God's voice was heard the loudest and the clearest through the ultimate prophet who was Jesus Christ. I love what it says in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. We know that uh, from our study of the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verse 1, that Jesus was referred to as the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Basically what he's saying is that Jesus is God's voice. He's he's the one who communicates who God is to us. Uh, as we know after Jesus returned to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to continue to speak to us. Again, this is right up our alley with John, John chapter 16 verse 13. But when he the spirit of truth comes, Jesus said he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative but whatever he hears he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come and again that was a reference to the inspiration of the holy spirit uh, that he would come upon the apostles and prophets and use them to write the scriptures uh, that's what it says in second peter chapter uh, 1 verses 20 and 21 It says, know this first of all that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so all that to say that the testimony of Scripture is that God has spoken and he continues to speak through the pages of his inspired word. Now, having said all that, there is one exception to the fact that God is not silent. Anybody know what I'm talking about? There was a time in history when God was silent, where he did not speak a word for 400 years. It was, it was called, the, the, the Bible scholar, scholars call it the intertestamental period, uh, it's the time span between the Old and the New Testament. It's that white space here if you're in Malachi, right? It's that white space between Malachi and Matthew, right there. That's, that's 400 years, the 400 silent years, the inter- intertestamental period as it's called. And, and so for four decades, time passed between the last word that God spoke to the prophet Malachi in Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, until the very first word he spoke through the archangel Gabriel to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. And we really have to jump to Luke chapter one for that. We'll see that in a moment. The question is, why the white space? Why this 400 year gap between Malachi and Matthew? What in the world would keep God from speaking, why would God stop talking for such a long period of time? I think one way to answer that question is that after speaking to the prophets for roughly the same amount of time, for 400 years, to no avail, the people of Israel failed to heed his words and repent of their sin and return to him, and so he simply stopped talking to them. He gave them the silent treatment, if you will. And you say, well, that doesn't sound like God. Well, then why did Jesus, who is God in the flesh, tell his disciples not to cast their pearls before swine? In other words, after a while, you, you continue to share the gospel and share biblical truth to someone, and they just trample it under their feet and they could give, give a rip about what you're saying. He says, hey, don't waste your time. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Go somewhere else. Right? Or how, this is also Jesus' words. Jesus said, shake the sandals, or the dust off the sandals, uh, off your sandals, right? When you go into a city and they don't listen to you, they don't listen to the message of truth, um, just take your sandals off, shake the dust off as you leave, uh, signifying, right, that God's judgment is upon these people because they would not heed the word of God. And so I can't think of anything sadder, is that a word? or scarier, more sad, more scary than to not hear from God. That's a sad, scary place. If you are hearing nothing from God, if basically God's given you the silent treatment, that may be an indication, right, that you ain't been listening. And so he's not going to waste his time talking to you anymore, right, because you haven't listened, Ironically, of the 55 verses in Malachi, 47 of them were spoken directly by God, which is a higher proportion than in any other book of the Bible. Typically, you've got John, for example, the Gospel of John, you've got a lot of John writing, right? And then he quotes Jesus, right? Uh, Same thing with the prophets. A lot of the prophets are talking, and then there's quotes from God. But Malachi is, is basically one big quote from God. and it's as if god was making his final appeal to his wayward people through through malachi and he used more words than ever before or he ever would to try to get their attention to get them to turn back to him he ramped up the words if you will now malachi means my messenger that's what malachi literally translated means my messenger was the last of the Old Testament prophets until John the Baptist. And really, the book of Malachi serves as a bridge between the Old and New Testaments. And we'll see that the main point of his prophecy is that God will send another Malachi. God will send another messenger. And initially, that messenger would be John the Baptist, who would ultimately prepare the way for The real messenger, the messianic messenger, right? Jesus Christ. In fact, listen to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verse 10, quotes Malachi. Here's Jesus quoting Malachi, talking about giving giving tribute to John the Baptist. Verse 9, this is Matthew eleven nine. 9. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you that one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And again, that was a direct quote from Matthew, uh, Malachi, 11, or me, Malachi 3, 1. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so if you want to underline a verse, a key verse for Malachi, I think you could underline Malachi chapter three, verse one. Talking about the, the, the other messengers that were coming in the form of John the Baptist and Jesus. Now I'll give you a little Historical context here, as we as we move into the text, uh, Malachi was one of three uh, post-exilic prophets who ministered to the exiles who had returned to Judah to rebuild the temple and the walls. The other two uh, were, of course, Haggai and and, and Zechariah. So that's why they're the last three books of the Old Testament: Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. All three post-exilic prophets. And uh, if you remember, Haggai and Zechariah both prophesied during the rebuilding of the temple, and Malachi prophesied about a hundred years later after the rebuilding of the walls. So you've got the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, right, Uh, that that we we were familiar with, and so Haggai and Zechariah were contemporaries of Ezra, and and then Malachi was a contemporary of Nehemiah. And so the best place to go to understand the historical background of the book of Malachi is the book of Nehemiah. So just turn back there quickly for a second. Go, go, go back to Nehemiah, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. So maybe Psalms, go to Psalms, back up to Job, and then you've got uh, es, Esther and Nehemiah. But you're familiar, uh, I'm sure, generally with the book of Nehemiah. It's, uh, it's, it's Nehemiah's memoirs his uh, personal biography, autobiography of how God used him to rebuild uh, the walls uh, of, of, of Jerusalem. And so under his stellar organizational leadership, his stellar uh, spiritual leadership, the people completely rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem in an amazing 52 days. I mean, truly amazing uh, uh, feat, and so after the, reconcil- after, the, after the reconstruction of the walls, Nehemiah uh, and the people called Ezra, who was the scribe, and, uh, and, and, and God used Ezra to reconsecrate the people. So they had reconstructed the walls, and now they needed to reconsecrate themselves as, as, uh, as, as, a, as a people. And you'll remember Nehemiah chapter 8, that classic chapter where Ezra gives that famous exposition of the book of the law of Moses. Remember they said, hey, Ezra, bring the book. Bring the book, man. They built a huge platform, right? And and he and he and he was he was explaining the law to the people. And as a result, the people, you remember their response? What what happened? They they wept and they confessed their sin to God and they vowed that they would he would keep they, they would keep the law from that point on. And so they they made an agreement with God that they actually put in writing to to live according to God's law, to refrain from intermarrying with with foreign nations, to keep the Sabbath and to faithfully tithe all of their wealth. Look at Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 28. And and this is gonna give us some insight into when when we get to to Malachi. Now the rest of the people, this is Nehemiah 10.8. Now the rest of the people... These are, the, this is, these are the obligations of the document that they had put in writing. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands To the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God, our Lord, and his ordinances and statutes, that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land, or take their daughters for our sons. As for the peoples of the lands who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day, and we will forego the crops, the seventh year, and the exaction of every debt. We also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute year- yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the continual grain offering, for the continual burn offering, the Sabbath, the new moon, for the appointed times, for the holy things, and for the sin offerings, and to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of our God, and they went on to talk about how they were going to cast lots to to make sure that the Levites were taken care of, and that they had everything that they needed according to the law, uh, verse thirty nine: For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine, the oil to the chambers. The, the, there are the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers, and the singers. Thus, we will not neglect the house of our God. And so. Here, these guys are. They're making this 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 serious um, commitment, recommitment, and in chapter twelve of Nehemiah, they 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 hold this big celebration to commemorate their renewed commitment to God. And you see that in chapter twelve. Uh, Starting in verse 31 all the way to verse 43, just listen to verse 43, and on that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy, even the women and children rejoiced, so the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. And so they were throwing a party. okay, they were so excited because the temple had been rebuilt, the walls were now rebuilt, the, the temple rituals had been restored, the people had reconsecrated themselves. I mean, everything appeared to be going so well and, and to be ready. Everything was ready for God to send the Messiah and to restore Israel to her former glory as the preeminent nation of the world and all the other nations would bow down before her. And, and just like God had been promising through, through all the prophets, for example, you remember last week we talked about Zechariah and how he had promised about, uh, about a, a splendid restored temple and all the nations of the earth would stream to it and there would be this powerful new kingdom and, and and on the throne would sit the mighty son of David, the Messiah. And so the people are pumped and excited. And then according to the book of Nehemiah in chapter 13, Nehemiah went back to Persia for about seven years or so. Uh, It mentions that in chapter 6, but during all this time, I was not in Jerusalem. For the 32nd year of Artaxerxes came about, I had gone to the king. Remember, he was the king's, what, cupbearer, right? So he'd gone back to, to reacquaint himself with the king. But when he had returned, notice, I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Elisha had done to Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. It was very displeasing to me, so I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then I gave an order, and they cleansed the room, and I turned their their utensils of the house of God with grain offerings and frankincense. Man, that doesn't sound good. Something something happened. Something bad happened there. Some dude had moved into the, the temple. That didn't belong there. And so Nehemiah comes back from Persia, And he's appalled by the corruption and the indifference that had developed while he was away. Um, And and again, you can just um, look at some of the the subtitles if you have those in in your Bible like mine. Uh, He had to restore the tithes because they weren't giving tithes like they had promised. He had to restore the Sabbath because they were again trading and doing business on the Sabbath. And they had promised not to do that. And then he also had to confront them for for um, marrying, intermarrying with the the foreign nations. And so they were not living according to God's law, they were not paying their tithes, they were not keeping the Sabbath, they were intermarrying with with foreign women, and so tragically, here were these exiles that apparently had learned little from their time in captivity because they lapsed back into many of the same sins that resulted in their exile in the first place. And, And this was a classic case of backsliding, going backwards, right, in in your spiritual life. And so these were the same exact sins that the people had promised that they would never commit again. And they had put it in writing, we will never do this again. That's convicting, isn't it? How many times have you, in a moment of brokenness, promised to God, I will never do that again? Anybody ever made that promise to God? I got my hand high, okay? I will never do that again. And then sometimes an hour later, you're doing it again. Or a day later, or a week later, or a month later, or a year later, you're back at it. Listen, the story of the Old Testament is here for our benefit. We were talking about this morning with with a group of guys, what it says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that this was written for our instruction, that you, you know It's easy to read through the Old Testament and go, man, these guys were a bunch of knuckleheads. I can't believe it. How could, they, how could they do that? Well, if that's your attitude, then you don't understand the wickedness of your own heart. Because the story of Israel is a story of us. And so as we're going to see in our study of Malachi here, that the sins that Nehemiah returned to find were the very same sins that God had called Malachi to confront while Nehemiah was away. So, so God raised up Malachi in those seven or so years when Nehemiah was out of town, right? had gone back to Persia. This, is, um, this was the, the time that Malachi ministered. And, and one of the most disturbing things about the book of Malachi, as we'll see, is how arrogant and cynical and skeptical the people had become toward God. You say, well, what made him so cynical? What made him so calloused? What, what made him so bitter? Well, I think it was likely because all the prophecies during the, the previous generations about the exciting things to come had, had gotten their hopes up that everything was going to change, and, 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 and they were ready for that. But now a 100 years had passed since the remnant had returned and the people were discouraged that nothing had been promised, nothing that, the, that had been promised by the prophets had, had happened yet. And so by the time Malachi came along, the temple was run down. It was neglected because of a lack of funds. Priests were corrupt. The people were getting divorced. The economy was depressed. Parasites were devouring the crops. People were disillusioned and doubtful, as as Chuck Swindoll said, I thought very well. He said, like passengers at a train station waiting for a train that never came. And so they'd given up hope, and they'd gone back to their old way of life, thinking much like... Um, I'm blanking on his name, Asaph in Psalm 73, that it didn't pay to honor God with your life. Remember that, Asaph? He he envied the wicked, and he said, I've kept my heart pure in what? In vain. They were struggling with that same mindset. Why? Because it appeared to them that God didn't really love them after all. And so consequently, they were disenchanted with God, uh, but they were also embittered toward God. And we're going to see here in just a moment that, that uh, the, the style that, that, that is used here, that God uses through uh, the Spirit's inspiration of Malachi, is a question and answer style. It's kind of a dialogue form where God makes a charge against the people of Israel and the people challenge God with a question. They talk back to God. They're like, What are you talking about? How have we robbed you? And so it just shows kind of where their heart was at. Uh, a couple places I want to read here that I thought were were helpful for me to just give me a, an understanding of the background. The really the, what what was going on behind the scenes to 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 to, to, to really understand why God and in, in, was interacting with Israel like he did in this book. One commentator says this, Malachi ministered to the returned exiles in Judah, but uh, but about a hundred years later, during his days, the temple had finally been rebuilt, and thanks to the efforts of Nehemiah, the walls of Jerusalem had been rebuilt as well. The former rituals of worship had been restored. All things appeared to be ready for the restoration of God's people to their former situation. Surely now God would come in power and glory to reestablish his people as preeminent among the nations. And yet nothing happened. Nothing happened. And nothing continued to happen. The the expected glorious manifestation of God in their midst was not taking place. They continued to scrape by as a small province on the margins of the world powers and dependent on their good graces, it began to look as if things were never going to get any better. The people began to suspect that God had really given up on them. They began to believe that God no longer loved them. He wasn't going to exalt them. He wasn't going to judge their enemies as He had promised. And if God wasn't going to remember them, well then, what point was there in honoring Him? Routine, insincerity, compromise began to infect their worship. Their growing belief in God's unfaithfulness to them led to unfaithfulness toward Him and toward one another. They needed to be reminded of some important truths, and God charges his prophet Malachi to do just that. Listen, be careful whenever you begin to doubt God's faithfulness to you, because when you doubt his faithfulness to you, you will start to be unfaithful to him. He says, Malachi reminded God's people that God indeed loved them and still had some amazing things in store. If they continued to trust and honor him and if they demonstrated those hard attitudes by their behavior, they would surely participate in the glorious future he had planned. Malachi urged God's people not to turn away from him, but rather to dig in the heels of their faith and patiently serve him even in their less than desirable circumstances as they awaited the day when he would return to deliver his treasured possessions. He had certainly not forgotten them. And so, while the long-anticipated Messiah had not arrived and didn't seem to be anywhere near in sight, here comes Malachi, as one commentator said, to write the capstone prophecy of the Old Testament. And this is really the capsule, in capsule four. Number one, God's message of judgment on Israel for their continuing sin. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's kind of been what they've all been saying And then number two, God's promise that one day in the future, when the Jews repent, Messiah would be revealed and God's promises would be fulfilled. Again, doesn't that sound like every other bottom line message of the Minor Prophets? Yes, exactly. And so Malachi's mission was not only to expose the sin in the hearts of these disillusioned, disgruntled people, but also to light a flame of faith in their hearts by reminding them that God hadn't forgotten them and he would keep his promises. And so uh, the book really can be broken down into three sections. Um, I wasn't sure w- how to outline it as, as far as titles, but uh, one interesting outline I read I thought was good. The, uh, you could break it down this, this way. Um, the privilege of the nation, the pollution of the nation, and the promise to the nation. Um, Either way, it, it all breaks down the same. It's really verses 1, chapter 1, 1 through 5, is, is the first section. Um, second section is chapter 1, verse 6, all the way to chapter 3, verse 15. And then chapters 3, verse 16, uh, to chapter 4, verse 6. Um, and the outline that I'm choosing to use tonight is simply this. There was a message, first of all, a message of love. Secondly, a message of rebuke. And thirdly, a message of of hope, a message of hope. Let's look first of all at the message of love. Verse one, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Wow, that's right off the bat, they're talking back to God. God said, I've loved you. And they're like, seriously, like how? Show us, tell us. "'Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? "'Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, "'and I have made his mountains a desolation "'and appointed his inheritance "'for the jackals of the wilderness.'" Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins, thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. And so when questioned about his love for them, um, God immediately goes to his election of them. I'll, I'll show you how much I've loved you. I, I chose you. I had a choice to make between Esau and Jacob, right? Twins in the womb. And, and before either of them did anything, I chose Jacob, who would be, of course, the line of Israel. And Esau was the Edomites, who would, became the enemies of God. And again, he's talking about his sovereign choice here. All the people could see was their hardship, all of God's unfulfilled promises. And so he reaffirms his love for them by reminding them of how he selected them and how he preserved them as his chosen people. This is reminiscent of of what what God said in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verse seven: The Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples; for you were the fewest of all nations. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers, and the Lord brought you out of it by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the land, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so, why did God choose Israel? Because he's God and he can do whatever he wants. And so he chose Israel. And of course, this language in Malachi chapter one, where it says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Does that sound familiar anywhere in the New Testament? Paul quoted Malachi in in Romans chapter nine, when he was uh, instructing the Romans on the doctrine of election. He says in Romans chapter nine, verse 10, not only this, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had done, not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, it was said to her, and here's the quote, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. And of course, Paul anticipates the the natural question now, what shall we say then there is no injustice with god is there may it never be in other words paul knew that people were going to be li- reading this letter and going wait a minute that's not fair that's that's not just and you saying are you going to are you going to blame god of, of 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 injustice may it never be for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, so that it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. And again, Paul's anticipating somebody's not going to like this. He can see the hand already raised in the back of the room. And so he says in verse 19, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? Wait a minute. So how can you blame Pharaoh for being a knucklehead and hardening his heart? It says that you chose to harden his heart. And he says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why do you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Interesting, I don't know if you ever thought about um, Malachi, the book of Malachi, when it came to the doctrine of election. But there it is in the book of Malachi. Kind of an obscure reference, but Paul uses it to make his case in, in, in Romans chapter 9. So the, the, the bottom line here is that instead of appreciating their blessed state as God's chosen people, what were the Jews doing? Ah, he doesn't love us. They were grumbling about their difficulties um, that their own sin had caused. And they were spurning the covenant of God. And so the Lord was going to rebuke them. And that's what he does next. And so he starts with a message of love and just reminding them, reaffirming his love for them in verses 1 through 5. And then he goes to this message of of rebuke. And he rebukes, first of all, the the priests, and then he rebukes the people. Notice how he rebukes the priests here in chapter 1, verse 6, all the way to chapter 2, verse 9. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? See how they are? They're just talking back to the God. What are you talking about? How have we dishonored you? How have we not respected you? They were in a bad spot. When you start responding to God that way, you're not in a good place. And so he says, okay, I'll tell you. I'll show you how you dishonored me, how you disrespect me. You are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? There they go again, right? They want to argue with God in that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us with such an offering on your part? Will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? In other words, they, what they were doing... Uh, is they were violating the law, which says that when they were to present offerings to the Lord, they were to be animals without what? Blemish. Unblemished. They, They were to give God the very best of the best. And instead of looking out and going, okay, that's the best sheep in my flock, they were saying, where's that old sickly one that's like ready to croak? And, you know, the one that was laying over there in the weeds because it was about to die, and they thought, you know, that thing's going to die anyway. Let's get him, and let's sacrifice him. So they were sacrificing blind animals, uh, lame animals, sick animals, and and it was a complete violation of God's law. They were dishonoring the Lord. They said, you wouldn't even offer that to your, I dare you to offer that to the Persian governor. How do you think he would respond? Do you think he would be honored by that? You got this one-eyed sheep that you bring up there, and and he's going to like that? Sheep's limping up to the, no, he wouldn't stand for it. So why should I stand for it? And then notice he says in verse 10, Oh, that there was, were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. In other words, I, I, would, I would rather you just shut the gates of the temple and not even offer sacrifices. If that's how you're going to be. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name. And a grain offering that is pure for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it, in that you say, the table Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is, and you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring what is taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? I think he's talking about here, um, referring to the, the, the offering that people would also bring to the priests. They, they were not only to bring an offering to the Lord, they were also to bring an offering to the priest to supply the priests, to support the priests, right? Because they'd made their, they had no other way to make a living, and so the people were responsible to take care of the priests. And, and, and they were, people were bringing their, their offerings, and they were like, give me a break. That's all you got? They were being completely ungrateful, um, looking a gift horse in the mouth, if you will, okay? They didn't, they didn't want anything to do with what these people were bringing. They wanted something better. They were greedy, they were selfish. Verse 14 But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. He goes on. And now this commandment is for you, O priests. If you do not listen and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already because you're not taking it to heart. Behold, I'm going to rebuke your offspring and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. I mean, he's, God's, God's like getting after it with these guys. I'm gonna take the, the, the poop of these animals and I'm gonna wipe it on your face. Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, and my commandment may may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave to him as an object of reverence, so he revered me and stood in awe of my name. Listen, you guys are completely off the rails here from, from the original priest, Levi. He was an honorable man. He was a righteous man. True instruction was in his mouth and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and and he turned many back from iniquity for the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge and men should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you've turned aside from the way you have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways but are showing partiality. In the instruction. In other words, instead of leading people to me, you're leading people astray. You're leading people away from me. And nothing hacks God off more, okay? Righteous hacking off, right? Righteous indignation. Nothing makes God more angry than when those he has appointed to lead the people to him lead people away from him. You think he gets mad at you when you sin, what do you think he gets mad at me, (laughs) how mad he gets at me when I sin, right? Because I'm supposed to be the example, I'm supposed to be leading. And so here he rebukes these these unfaithful priests. And after rebuking the priests, he turns his attention to the people who were backsliding. And in in chapter 2, verse 10, all the way to chapter 3, verse 15, he He begins to confront the people. Do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother and so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? And so they weren't treating one another kindly, graciously, generously. uh, There was a lot of infighting. Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakens and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. So he's just confronting them for their their idolatry, um, their injustices. And then notice verse 13 there's another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. They're like, I got another thing against you guys. You're you're balling like a bunch of babies because I'm not pleased by your offerings. And so you weep and you wail and, and, and you say, well, why? I don't understand, God. Well, why aren't you blessing me? Well, I'll tell you why. Because you're violating the covenant of your marriage. Verse 15, not one has done so who has a remnant of the spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate, what? Divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed your spirit and do not deal treacherously. And so what was happening here was uh, they were divorcing their wives so they could marry foreign women. That's what they were doing. They, they, were, they were dealing treacherously with the wife of their youth. And, uh, of course, verse 16, uh, I think, is, is really a foundational verse when it comes to understanding what the Bible teaches, what God thinks about divorce. Now, I say this um, understanding that some of you here may have been, uh, may be divorced. You've already, you've experienced a divorce. Um, for some of you, that was before you were saved, before you ever came to know Christ. And, and, and uh, I think according to the scriptures, that's under the blood. <laughs> it's under the blood. Uh, it's forgiven. Uh, you don't need to walk around feeling guilty about that. Uh, there's a lot of things that a lot of us did before we got saved that we're not proud of, right? And that dishonor of the Lord, and, and we know we're forgiven. Um, some of you may have even experienced a divorce as a Christian. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe your um, maybe your spouse um, committed adultery, and uh, your marriage dissolved that way. Maybe. Maybe uh, your unbelieving spouse punted you and punted your marriage um, because they didn't want to live with you anymore. Um, I think the, the, the point is this, that, that over all, the overarching principle is that God hates divorce. It was not anything he ever intended to happen, right? Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. One man, one woman for life. That was God's design. That was God's intention. Um, But he also knew that men's hearts were hard and that divorce would be something that happened um, because of men's sin. And uh, the, the New Testament, I think, gives us two Uh, grounds, two biblical grounds, if you will, for divorce. There's there's two, and I believe only two grounds for divorce. One would be an adultery situation. Matthew chapter 19 talks about this. Um, This is 19 verse 8. Matthew 19 verse 8, "...because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman commits adultery." So again, notice he says, with the exception of immorality. And again, I don't think this is a, uh, I messed up and, 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 I, and, and I had an affair. I don't necessarily think that's automatic grounds for divorce because look at Hosea, the book of Hosea. Here was a, 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 an ungodly woman running around on her husband, and what did Hosea do? He kept loving her and pursuing her and trying to win her back. Um, I think that's the godlike model. But I think if, if someone is hard-hearted, unrepentant in their, in their adultery, uh, I think God is merciful to the faithful partner. That if that, that vow was violated by that other person, that, that God gives them an out uh, in extreme cases like that. The other one, of course, is abandonment, right? I already mentioned that, 1 Corinthians 7. It talks about uh, if your unbelieving spouse leaves you, uh, you're no longer bound, you're free. Um, and so, again, that's another biblical grounds for divorce is adultery or abandonment. The point is this, um, how can we expect God's blessing on our lives if we mistreat our spouses and we break our vows and our promises for, for selfish reasons, reasons other than these biblical grounds, Right? And how many times have if, if, if we had that conversation with someone, right, and say, you know what, I'm just not happy, and I know God wants me to be happy, so he must want, not want me in this marriage anymore. Really? So when did your happiness become the premier thing in the universe? No, it's about God's glory, and it's about Christ's reputation. And, and so, again, I'm not saying this, hopefully, to make any of you feel guilty uh, for Getting divorced because again, if you've confessed that to the Lord, if there were not biblical grounds, you confess that to the Lord. You've repented of that. You've made things right as right as they can be, right? Then, then guess what? It's under the blood. You're forgiven. You don't have to live with this. You know the big scarlet letter on your chest, the big D on your chest, right? You don't have to live with that, right? Uh, uh, What I'm what I'm saying is, hey, if you're thinking about this. You're, you're being tempted to deal treacherously with your spouse and divorce them for unbiblical reasons. Um, shame on you, is what God's saying. Don't do it. Not an option. Don't expect God's blessing on your life if you do. It's very dishonoring to the Lord, and he was confronting the people here. He was rebuking the people uh, for this. He goes on in verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words that you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? So here they are, they're talking about, um, hey, it seems like those people who do evil, um, they're blessed. It seems like they're getting off scot-free. They're getting to do whatever they want. um, and, And apparently you delight in them Where's the justice, God? Why do I here, here I am trying to keep myself pure and live a holy life and and, and it seems like all I get is punishment, all I get is trial, and, and that guy over there, my neighbor, my unsaved neighbor, he's doing all this stuff and me, he's having a great time. Where's the justice in that guy? That's not fair. And so God answers, He says, Okay, you want justice? I'll give you justice. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek, you, you want the Lord? Where where, where are you, God? <laughs> the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so, as I've already mentioned, that's a clear reference to to John the Baptist, and we know that because this is quoted several times in the Gospels by Jesus, um, referring to John the Baptist, and of course it refers to uh, the Lord himself, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Notice verse 2 But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in former days. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be swift. Be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Love that. Another verse to underline, one of the greatest verses in the Bible about God's Immutability that God does not change. God is faithful and he says, by the way, that's why you're not consumed. That's why you haven't, uh, you're, you're not toast right now uh, because I'm faithful to my promises and I promise to, to punish you but not to destroy you. Verse seven, from the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. We talked about that last week. It's the prodigal son, right? Return to me, and I'll return to you. I am ready to throw a party, uh, but you need to return to me. And he says, well, well how, how should we return to you, God? As if they didn't know, still being smug, cynical, skeptical, callous in their heart towards him. And then this is probably one of the most familiar sections of the book of Malachi. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, Well, how have we robbed you? He says, God, said, God says, I'll tell you in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. In other words, it's not going real good for you right now. In fact, you're struggling financially. Why? Because you're under a curse, because you're robbing me. You're not giving back to me what is rightfully mine. You're a steward of everything that you have, it's all mine. And I've given it to you as a steward and and so you need to give back to me off the top, right? The first fruits, you're not doing that. Verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Don't just give me the leftovers. Don't be stingy with your offering so that there may be food in my house and test me now on this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. In other words, test me. Put, put a little extra in the offering box and, and see what happens. Test me. See if I'm faithful to, to provide for your needs and bless you. Notice he says, then I will rebuke the devourer for you. This is the parasites that were eating, the, the destroying the fruits of the ground. Nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, I'll remove the curse off of your agriculture. And God said, hey, if you, if you don't honor me, I'll, I'm gonna curse your agriculture. I'm gonna curse your crops. It's not gonna rain, you're gonna have locusts, you're gonna have all this stuff happen. He says, I'll remove that. And then notice verse 13, your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord, yet you say, what, what have we spoken against you? How have we been arrogant? You have said it is vain to serve God and what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts. So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. They were struggling with Psalm 73. I've kept my, my heart pure in vain. And so he rebukes them here and, uh, and, and ultimately, we're going to see here, the, the underlying cause for Israel's sin was that they, she, she had lost her fear and reverence of the Lord, which, by the way, is the cause of all of our sin. That's what it says in Romans 3.18 at the end of that description of, you know, there was no one righteous, there's no one good, we've all sinned. It says, there was no fear of God before their eyes. And so they lack the fear of God. The, the, the word fear is used multiple times, seven times in this book. Notice the very next um, verse, and this is moving into this message of hope here. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him, so you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. So he begins this message of hope and he promises that those who fear him and honor him will be blessed. But those who don't fear him and don't honor him, will be cursed. Notice he says in verse 4, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant, and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day is coming, and it will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. I mean, we're talking like completely consumed. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. What a great image, right? You ever been out in, the, out in a field and, and, or been on a farm and you see the little calves just jumping around just for joy, just having a, having a great old time? Not a care in the world. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. By the way, in the New Testament, that verse is used of John the Baptist, that he was Elijah-like. It wasn't literally Elijah who was coming. it was, he was John the Baptist was Elijah-like. However, there's also a reference here to the second coming of Christ when some say that Elijah will actually return and possibly be one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and to the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Malachi serves as a fitting conclusion to the Old Testament. Why? Because it just underscores the sinfulness of man and anticipates God's solution in the coming of the sinless Messiah. And so the, the, the deafening silence after he says, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse, period, boom, 400 years of deafening silence broken by the angel Gabriel when he announced to an old priest named Zacharias that he would father a son who would fulfill the promise of Malachi. Listen to Luke chapter 1, verse 13. But the angel said, "Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit of power, in the spirit and the power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers back." to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Malachi to Gabriel. See the connection? How ironic that the Old Testament ends with the word curse curse. You ever notice that? So that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Interesting, the Jews, when they read Malachi, they will repeat verse 5 after they read verse 6 because they don't want to end on a down note. That sounds too negative. And so they repeat verse 5 in the whole idea about the, the coming of the great... Uh, and terrible day of the Lord, the coming of the Messiah. But curse, that word curse, is the last word that God chose to have echo in the ears of his people for 400 years. Why? So they would anticipate the coming of the one who would take the curse on himself and in doing so would break the curse of sin and death. It's a beautiful entree into the New Testament. It's a beautiful preparation for the gospel. I was thinking about Christmas in light of Malachi. And there's a song that we all love to sing at Christmas, one of the probably most well-known Christmas carols, Joy to the World. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. Remember the third verse? It says, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. And what Isaac Watts, who wrote that great carol, was expressing is the joyous truth that the Lord Jesus Christ would mercifully come to this sin-cursed world to deliver us From all the pain and all the sorrow and the misery that we've brought upon ourselves as a result of our own sin. And so as a result of sin's curse, every one of us is living... With pain and death and mourning and heartache and sorrow and suffering and tears, it's just a normal part of life. And the the harsh reality is that we are the ones who created this mess by not following God's commands and living according to His ways. And so we have no one else to blame but ourselves. We're under a curse. But the good news is that in the midst of God cursing the world as punishment for man's sin, He's promised to send a Savior who would remove the curse of sin that rests on us so we can live with the hope of being forgiven for our sin and living forever in a restored heaven and earth. And so what should our response be? As we think about Malachi in light of the Christmas season, this is, this is what you should be doing for the next week and a half. You will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. I know that sounds corny, right? Go out and go out of here and and skip around like a little a, a, a newborn calf. But if you've been born again, right, and you know and understand the gospel, and you know that you no longer are under the curse of sin, you you're freed from the the curse of sin and death. Well, what else would you do? But but. Be joyful, joy to the world. The Lord has come. The curse is gone. And I'm gonna skip around my house and I'm gonna skip around my neighborhood. And I'm gonna skip around my workplace. I'm gonna skip around at school with joy because the Lord has come. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the minor prophets and especially Malachi. What a great ending to this series Lord, and and a good good reminder to us, Lord, that you have come, and you will come again. And as we celebrate your first coming, uh, this season of Christmas, Lord, I pray that we would truly honor you with our lives, that we would give you our very best, that we wouldn't shortchange you, we wouldn't give you our leftover time and money and energy. And Lord, if there's anyone here tonight who's maybe struggling with a similar heart that the people of Israel had in, in the book of Malachi—that they're cynical, they're skeptical, they're they're critical, they're um, they're disenchanted, they're embittered towards you and towards everything else around them—Lord, I pray that you would just uh, convict their hearts and and humble them, and and Lord, may they come uh, to Christ and and find the the joy. Lord, again, restore their joy, the joy of their salvation. And uh, may they truly be able to leap, leap for joy like that newborn calf. And so, Lord, we pray that we would honor you with our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.